You're listening to Gender Ed, a podcast created and hosted by Virginia Tech's Women's Center. Join us in celebrating the experiences, achievements, and diversity within our campus community. Our conversations will explore the intersection of gender and other identities and cover topics on leadership, equity, well-being, and healthy relationships. We hope to have meaningful and relatable conversation, but this podcast is not intended to provide therapy, legal counsel, or specific advice for meeting your unique needs around coping with personal or community trauma and discrimination. To report a bias incident, please contact the Dean of Students Office at 540-231-3787 or use the reporting form found at dos.vt.edu. If you are in need of identity-based support, connect with the cultural and community centers at ccc.vt.edu or 540-231-8584. If you have questions, concerns, or needs related to your mental health and well-being, please contact Cook Counseling at 540-231-6557 for more information. You can also make an appointment for advocacy at the Women's Center via email to wcsupport at vt.edu or contact our office Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. at 540-231-7806. Welcome, you're listening to Gender Ed, a projection of the Women's Center at Virginia Tech. I'm your host, Ashley, and I'm here with my colleague, Katie. Thanks for joining us for our 13th episode. Today, we're talking with Dr. Shannon Elizabeth Bell, Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the Department of Sociology. Dr. Bell, thanks so much for joining us. Can you start us off by sharing with our listeners about a little bit about who you are and what your role is within the VT community? Yeah, so, um, so as you just said, I'm an associate professor in the sociology department here in Virginia Tech. Um, and I've been here since 2017. Uh, before, before I was here, I was um, a sociology professor at University of Kentucky for seven years. So I am an environmental sociologist and my areas of research and teaching include environmental justice, energy transitions, social movements, and gender. Well, we're so glad you're a part of our community. Um, and to help our audience get to know you a little better, we'd like to ask you to play along with a little bit of a get to know you question. Okay. So in the, the theme of environmental justice and Earth Day, what's your favorite eco-friendly product or eco-friendly tip? So I'll go with the eco-friendly tip. Um, and I think that the most eco-friendly thing you can do is get involved in organizations that are leading the fight for environmental and climate justice. Um, we are in the midst of a climate emergency and we need to take immediate and major action. Um, and social movements are really the only way that's going to happen. I really appreciate that. I think that when we, um spend a lot of time focusing on individualistic actions and like things like buying different products or changing small habits, but that's not a bad thing, right? Um, and, right, we know that um, it's our en masse kind of lifestyle and the way that we allow um, our communities and societies to operate that really is driving a lot of this climate crisis, right? So absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, it is, it is the system. Um, that needs to change. And the only way that's going to happen is by collective action. Well, thanks so much for sharing with our audience. This podcast is airing um, right before Earth Day. And so in celebration of Earth Day, we wanted to talk a little bit um, with you about environmental justice, the roles women play specifically, um, and the impacts that that has. 
Um, however, before we jump into that, can you share with us the difference between environmental justice movements, which is what we'll be talking about today, and the more mainstream environmental movements that people may be familiar with? Sure. So, um, so mainstream environmental movements have historically focused on conservation, wilderness protection, um, and they haven't really attended to the people living in polluted environments. But there are certain areas of the United States and globally that are treated as sacrifice zones um, or places where the resources and the people living there are exploited and seen as expendable. Um, they're exploited in the name of progress and national security. And in these sacrifice zones, the true costs of energy production, consumer products, agricultural products, are externalized onto the local people and their environment in the form of pollution, destruction of the land, limited economic opportunities. So in other words, not all people share the burden of environmental hazards and pollutants produced by society equally. Um, those with the least political and economic power bear a disproportionate share of the waste and pollution that's created by society. And these groups most often include communities of color, low-income communities, indigenous communities, and people living in global South nations. So the environmental justice movement really seeks to address those particular concerns of those communities. Um, and it's distinct from the mainstream environmental movement in its focus on social justice for people who live, work, play, and learn in the most polluted environments in the world. So rather than focusing solely on conservation efforts, environmental justice movements aim to protect the health and safety of socially vulnerable individuals in their communities. And the environmental justice movement in the United States actually emerged out of the civil rights movements um, in recognition of the environmental racism that African-American communities experienced and continue to experience today. Yes, thank you so much for clarifying that. That was. Um so insightful too of like the comparison and people are very familiar and like oh yes how Katie mentioned like we do the eco-friendly tip like what's one thing that I can do but this is really a problem that impacts so many people in so many different ways. This is a theme that's come up a lot in some of the interviews we've been doing recently and some of the um, cool folks we've been talking to this difference between kind of like a harm reduction approach like oh I can recycle the things that I use that I know are derived from this system um, that's harmful um, versus this idea of like a primary prevention approach. Like we need to change the system. We need to change the culture. We need to change um, the landscape. And I think that it's so um, important that you um, have provided that framework and that, that explanation for folks to understand that difference because it really is a conversation about changing a little bit at that foundation, right? Changing our framework rather than changing the little things of the end product or the outcomes and the results, right? If we keep chasing the results that we find harmful, we're never gonna get to those root causes. Um, and I think it's so crucial that folks who are interested in these topics um, start to understand that early on in their involvement. Yes, thank you for bringing that up, Katie. It's definitely um, figuring out like upstream issues, right? Of where is the problem starting, not just how can we fix the problem that we're stuck with. As with many movements, women are behind the scenes and leading the way when it comes to environmental justice activism. You have done extensive research, written countless articles, and even authored a book called Our Roots Run Deep as Ironweed, Appalachian Women in the Fight for Environmental Justice on this topic. Can you share why the work of environmental justice activism is so gendered? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so it is really interesting, um, and this is this is definitely a pattern across 
many environmental justice movements that women tend to be at the front lines of the grassroots struggles. Um, now it is important to, to make this distinction again between mainstream environmentalism and environmental justice movements because when you're talking about the big green the big greens, the big organizations, um, professionalized organizations that are working for, for environmental change. When there are jobs involved and, and leadership positions that are paid, men tend to hold those positions. And so, um, so what we're talking about is the, you know, on the ground, unpaid, um, or perhaps lowly, you know, not very well paid organizers um, who, are, who are doing the environmental justice organizing and, and grassroots movement work, um, those do tend to be really dominated by women. And, um, and there's a few reasons for that. Um, so one reason that's, that's most cited in the literature, or one of the most, most highly cited reasons in the literature is that um, you know, the gender hierarchy, the patriarchal society we live in, women tend to be the caregivers of children. Um, and, and that is a socially sanctioned role, right? That, um, that they hold you know, as, as the primary caregivers of children. And children tend to be the first hit or, or the most visibly hit by environmental health problems um, you know, in their developing systems. So mothers um, who are attending to their children often notice these small changes um, that, that grow or you know, problems with their children's health. And um, so that's, that's kind of an entry point that a, a lot of women environmental justice activists um, talk about uh, becoming involved in, in activism because of their concerns for their children's or their grandchildren's health. Um, and that is definitely a pattern that was replicated among the women Coalfield activists that, um, that I interviewed for my book that you mentioned. Um, many of them came into the movement because of their concerns about their children's health. Um, but that's really just one reason, and it's it's also a little bit deeper than that. So it's not it's not just that women are mothers. It's also that um, there are constraints on men's activism too. So so women, um, because of their lower social status and the gender hierarchy, um, actually in many cases have more freedom to protest. And so because their protest activities are seen as less threatening to the dominant social order, um, you know, they're, they're just being mothers, they're um, just trying to take care of their children. Um, so, so that um, kind of give, like I said, gives them a little more freedom to protest than, than the men. Um, and in, in my own research in coal mining communities, um, you know, plenty of men think that what's going on with uh, mountaintop removal mining is problematic, but, um, but there is a silencing effect on many men in the region because of the hegemonic masculinity or the dominant masculinity in the region has historically been tied to coal production and to coal mining. Now, um, coal mining jobs have declined tremendously over the past 60 or 70 years. But the fact that historically coal mining has been so tied to the locally specific, you know, dominant masculinity of the region has meant that, um, that many men still feel like they can't speak out against the industry because there are social, could be social repercussions for that. 
Um, and so here again, you know, it's it, women having more freedom because they, you know, there have been women coal miners, but, you know, they were the minority, um, their um, identities aren't wrapped up as much with coal production as men's identities are. Um, so that, that in my, in the case of, of the case study that, um, that I've worked with, that is, is really a, a pretty big reason why um, men aren't involved. But I think that that is probably also um, something that you see in other areas where the economic identity of an area is tied to a particular industry. Um, and so for, um, for other areas as well, it may have a silencing effect on, on men and keep them from becoming more involved in the movement. It's so interesting how the ways in which gender shows up, like we're very aware of the gender roles that society has determined and set us up for. Um, but when you look at it of this specifically to environmental justice, but like as you said, in many other movements, women are at a more advantage point because they are disadvantaged. And then men are so attached to, um, stereotypically so attached to their identity as whatever their profession is. They're so attached to these identities that they have to or do want to fill that they're not able to show up in other ways. It's so interesting to look at it as it translates throughout different movements, but it's specifically to this one, it's literally tied to their economic um, income and their, their ability to support their families um, and to maintain whatever lifestyle that they may have grown up knowing too. Like a lot of times coal mining is a family um, tradition, if you will. Like this is something that your parents or your grandparents have been a part of um, for such a long time, especially in the Appalachia area of how ingrained this is into that type of culture as well, so. Yeah, and the thing that's really interesting though is um, as, as I mentioned, there has been a huge decline in coal mining related jobs, but this is still affecting men's um, sort of ability to participate or willingness to participate in the movement. And that has been encouraged by the coal industry. So, so in the early 2000s, um, the West Virginia Coal Association launched this campaign called the Friends of Coal, which, um, which is a fake grassroots or astroturf organization that they created in order to reconnect people in West Virginia, and then it's spread to other states, um, to the coal industry because, because of the decline in coal, in coal mining jobs, that meant that the coal-related loyalties that people once had were no longer as strong as they once were. And this was also happening at the time when mountaintop removal mining was expanding, um, where there had been um, a rash of deaths from overweight coal trucks on the roads. Um, so there were all these things happening at that moment that created this political opportunity really for you know people to start trying to hold the coal industry more accountable for the harms it was bringing to the communities. But, and the coal industry recognized that. And so their response was creating this, the West Virginia Coal Association created this Friends of Coal movement. Um, and they did a variety of tactics that actually specifically targeted men's masculinity. So they, they appropriated um, masculine cultural icons from that area. So they appropriated football, um, NASCAR, fishing, the military, and they hired spokespeople sort of to represent each of these areas. Um, so they got two, the um, 
two football coaches with the most wins in the history of the two big college football teams in West Virginia to be their, their spokespeople. And they got a NASCAR driver and they got a professional bass fisherman and a military hero. Um, and so in, in my second book, Fighting King Cole, um, I talk about this and argue that, that they were really using these masculine cultural icons to reconnect men in the region to this historic masculinity that, um, that was not necessarily um, all that relevant to some people, many people's lives anymore. But because of that historical connection um, and the importance of maintaining that connection to, um, to kind of squelching resistance against the industry, um, the, the Friends of Coal movement um, really used these masculine cultural icons. And they also did other, other things that, you know, were from a public relations perspective, you know, really effective. Um, like um, they sponsored um, a, a football matchup, a big football um, game between Marshall Thundering Herd and the um, West WVU Mountaineers. And they hadn't played in, I don't know, something like 40 or 50 years. And so they sponsored the Friends of Coal Bowl that, you know, put those two teams against each other. And then they sponsored um, soccer fields and like uh, opera performance and like all these different things that was just, you know, essentially to, to demonstrate um, how even, how, how important the coal industry was even to people who weren't necessarily dependent on the coal industry for their livelihoods or for for you know, jobs or feeding their families. Um, and so that it started, like I said, it started in West Virginia and then it spread to other Appalachian states. And so I started um, as a professor at University of Kentucky in 2010. And when I got there, um, they had done the same thing with basketball. So football is a big thing in West Virginia and the basketball is a big thing in Kentucky. And so um, the coal industry had sponsored uh, a new new dorms for the basketball players. And they named the dorms, the Wildcat, because Kentucky is the Wildcats, the Wildcat Coal Lodge. Coal Lodge. Um, and they also, there were t-shirts there that like Coach Calipari was the basketball coach. And so they, you know, the t-shirts said, Coal, Cats and Calipari, a, a winning team. And so again, it was like, what does Cole have to do with basketball? But they were doing the same tactic there, you know, of appropriating this, um, this icon that was so culturally relevant there to demonstrate how important Cole was to everything. Um, so so it, it's fascinating um, seeing like, it's fascinating and troubling, <laughs> you know, seeing how these industries can manipulate gendered identities um, to their advantage and, and amplify them. So even if, um, even if coal is not as important to, um, to employment in the region as it once was, the historical significance of it and the ways in which the coal industry amplifies that connection um, can continue to have these effects of, of keeping communities from being able to move beyond the industry. So I guess like to sum it up, I just want to, you know, that it's, it's not necessarily, it's not, it's not necessarily that the culture of the area is, is this way. It's like the ways in which the culture has been manipulated by industry to maintain loyalties. That's important. Yes. Oh, so many things. And I think that's the PR pieces we see in so many movements as well, where people 
our ideas are presented and loyalties are presented in one way. And because we have these cultural values or who our family was or where we came from, we're so often quick to be like, yes, absolutely. Like that's my family, that's my culture with not always knowing the history behind that. Um, and without having these conversations, I think a lot of people end up in those spaces of, I was supported coal because my parents and my family came from coal mining, but not necessarily, I'm not supporting this. Like I'm not really understanding this. So um, I wanted to touch on something and you mentioned this, the hegemonic masculinity, um, which is the pattern of practice that maintains this dominance that men have over women, um, really uh, shaped this divide in environmental justice in the early 1900s. Like you mentioned, like this has been going on for quite some time. Um, and so women have been uniquely carrying this burden of work for a long time. Um, so what are some of the impacts that you've seen both on the individual person and on society as we're trying to address these issues of environmental justice um, when these efforts um, within this movement specifically are so divided? Yeah, so so I think you know something I, I mentioned before was was the fact that um, that many men, especially in in these coal mining communities that I've studied, feel constrained in being able to become involved. And and it's not that these men don't also see the harms that you know if, if they're fathers that are happening to their children or or that they don't care. I mean, it's it's that they have these social constraints on on their activism that are related to, um, to masculinity. And so, you know, I, in my book, well, for the, the, pro the larger project, my book, Our Roots Run Deep Desire and Weed, um, profiles 12 women environmental justice activists. But for the larger project, I did also interview some of the few local men who were involved in the movement as well. And by local, I mean um, individuals who grew up in the coal field, spent a significant, you know, number of years of their lives, formative years in the coal fields. And so these are folks who whose social networks are, are very deeply entwined with the area um, and, um, and, and have kind of more to lose by being involved in, in um, activism against the, you know, the dominant industry in the area. But, you know, the interesting thing in interviewing the men, the few men who have been able to um, sort of escape the hegemonic masculinity of the area. One thing they talked about was um, when I asked them, you know, why, you know, I asked them, do, you know, do, does it seem that there are more women involved in the movement? And, and, you know, and they all were like, yes, it's, you know, there's so many more women and asking them, you know, why do you think more men aren't involved? And, and they actually, you know, said things like, um, you know, men are silenced um, because there are, there could be repercussions for becoming involved. Women are, are really excused for their activism or, or men can, um, can sort of dismiss women's activism or dismiss their wives' activism by, you know, just being, oh, you know, she's out there protesting again and, you know, kind of diminish it um, because it's not seen as, threaten as, as threatening as it would be if, it, if a man, a man had, were protesting in the same way. But the interesting thing is that the men that I interviewed who, um, who were involved um, had all had some sort of experience that removed them from the region or from that from the coal-related masculinity. So, so a number of the men had lived elsewhere for um, for many years during um, during their adult lives um, and had only come back in retirement. Um, so their social networks were elsewhere, and they also had um, you know male friends who, who were 
from other parts of the country and not as um, tied to the masculinity of that area. Um, or something had happened that had really um, sort of removed them. So like one of the men that I interviewed, he lived next to a big coal preparation plant that covered the town and his home with coal dust on a daily basis. And he was a coal miner, um, but he actually, um, because it was like the dust was collecting inside his house every day, um, he did speak out about it. And um, the company that he worked for um, fired him and blackballed him from coal employment. And so that experience, of course, you know, of, of being um, pushed out of, of that industry and pushed out of um, being able to, you know, be a coal miner kind of made him go the other way and, and become involved in the environmental justice movements. But, but the other folks, the other men, um, you know, they, they were never coal miners or, you know, they hadn't or they had lived elsewhere for a significant number of years of their lives. Men's limited involvement in the environmental justice movement is, is one consequence. Um, but another interesting pattern that I've seen as well is the gender dimension of environmental justice activism also can give industry another way that, um, that they can manipulate um, manipulate identities. And so, so another um, strategy that I've seen used um, by the natural gas industry and by the coal industry as well is um, appropriating women's activist or motherhood identities by organizing their own arsenal of, um, of coal or coal or natural gas industry supporting women to speak on behalf of, of those industries. So, um, so in these public relations efforts, um, the fossil fuel industries organize women um, who use similar rhetoric um, as the environmental justice activist women about protecting children. So, so whereas the environmental justice activists are talking about um, wanting to protect their children's health or and, and safety from these polluting industries, um, the the women that are organized on behalf of industry talk about wanting to protect their children's economic futures or their children's ability to get jobs in the future. And, um, and so essentially, you know, kind of trying to fight fire with fire, right? By seeing that, that women speaking and acting on behalf of their children is an effective strategy. Um, these industries then appropriate that, that same, um, same tactic um, and and create their own women who are standing up for industry. I'll go ahead and wrap up with our last question. And I'm actually going to shift it a little bit because you kind of answered it with your get to know you question. Um, but because environmental justice is such a diverse and important topic, and you mentioned that one of the most effective ways to make those changes is to get involved in um, organizations and communities who are actually trying to negate that. Um, we've talked a lot about coal, you mentioned natural gas, but can you share with us some other um, areas where environmental justice activism and work is needed? Absolutely. I mean, I can, I can give you a, a very locally specific example. Um, so I would encourage listeners to get involved with um, the organizations that are fighting the Mountain Valley Pipeline here in um, Southwest Virginia. Protect Our Water Heritage Rights is a, or Power is a amazing organization that is doing this work. Um, and then um, one of the organizations working with Power is Preserve, Preserve Montgomery County, Virginia and Preserve Giles County, Virginia. Um, and they 
are have tirelessly been working to try to stop the Mountain Valley pipeline um, for years, and they are still fighting it. And um, and so I think that um, fighting natural gas pipelines is so important to the climate justice struggle because. Um, you know, new infrastructure like this is going to mean that we are going to be continuing to use natural gas for a very long time. Um, and so, yeah, so getting involved, so that those are some really important organizations that are that are at the front lines of the climate justice movement. Um, other organizations, there are still amazing organizations fighting mountaintop removal coal mining. So one really important one is Coal River Mountain Watch, which is in Southwest, is in Southern West Virginia. Um, Ohio Valley Environmental Coalition is another one. Um, and then there are so many amazing grassroots organizations fighting um, the oil industry, oil and gas industry. Um, in Louisiana, there's the Louisiana Bucket Brigade um, that, that works with frontline communities, communities who are um, whose homes are right next to oil refineries and petrochemical plants. And, um, and so there's, there are just so many different uh, needs and so many different environmental justice organizations that need support. And so I would just really encourage listeners to, to find an organization that is fighting against um, fossil fuel companies and, and, you know, do work with them, support them, try to get involved. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for sharing. And yeah, the list is definitely endless of the needs. Um, this is a very, like I said, very wide and diverse topic. We talk about action and getting involved, and that's really important. That's part of, again, another theme that has come up on our um, podcast a lot, whether it's talking with the cultural and community centers or talking with um, Timmy about sexual violence prevention or all these other topics. But, and um, part of the reason we do these interviews and we have this podcast is because we know folks need information first. You need to have an idea of what you're getting into. And just like we, we talked a little bit about with, you know, campaigns and how their messaging can be twisted and used subversively, um, it's really important to do your research as well. And so I just encourage folks, you know, there are the, the person we're talking to today is a faculty at your university. Um, and so there are places and folks um, who have this knowledge. And if you're interested in it, please take the time to figure out where you can get plugged in to get more of it. Um, I think that we rely so heavily on the internet. I know I learned some great things from TikTok, but there's also just like a limit, right? Um, to that personal connection and being able to ask questions and follow up. There's some great Appalachian representation on TikTok. And at the same time, you know, there's so much to cover. So if you have a particular interest, I just encourage you to not only get involved with these organizations, but start learning. Um, and learn what you can from folks who are involved and impacted first, rather than um, kind of taking the Wikipedia slice of life um, for granted, if that makes sense. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bell, for being here for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a pleasure. This has been episode 13 of Gender Ed, a podcast from the Women's Center hosted by Katie and Ashley. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you join us next time.